my privilege to read the passage that Pastor Mike will share with us. It's found on page 8 in the bulletin. First, let me address our hearts to the Lord for illumination. Father, you sent your Holy Spirit, as Jesus promised, to teach us and enlighten us and make clear to us all things. And we plead with you for your guidance to Pastor Mike and to our minds and hearts as we interact with this wonderful passage of Scripture. We ask, Lord, for illumination, for you to lighten this process, to hear your word and know what you have for us. We bless you for the goodness of your word and give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham? And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. He cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place far away. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I will go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac said to his father Abraham, Father? And he said, Here I am, my son. He said, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God himself will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will indeed bless you, and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies, and by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves, because you have obeyed my voice." So Abram returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I've asked 
Professor Jeff Harden to serve you by passing out copies of the manuscript in case anybody would like to have one. It often helps if you don't speak English as your first language, so there's Jeff with the manuscripts over there. Friends of Jesus Christ, this is one of the darkest passages in all of Scripture. Maybe one of the darkest passages in all of the collected literature of the whole world. And I don't imagine many churches are studying this passage on the first Sunday after Christmas. And if you're a visitor this morning, I'm not going to apologize, but I will explain what's going on here. This dark story fits here, not just because we've been following the life of Abraham, because but because it's part of the story of redemption. We've been using the story of Abraham as a sort of roadmap for our journey through Advent and our journey of waiting for the return of Jesus because we, like Abraham, are awaiting the final fulfillment of God's promises. The waiting and the trusting God during the waiting, which is what God asks of us, Trust can be hard, and this is a hard story, and I've just had this very strong sense that we need to hear the last chapter of the story of Abraham, even if that last part of Abraham's walk with God was probably the hardest of all. But the point isn't just finishing the story. The point is getting the whole story and understanding what this great story and was written and what this great life was lived in order to teach us. And as we followed Abraham's story, we've seen some parallels. We've seen how the birth of Isaac prefigures the birth of Jesus, the Messiah. The laughter at Isaac's birth. Isaac's name means laughter. He laughs prefigures the heavenly joy of the angels who sing God's praise at the birth of Jesus. But in the story of Jesus, and even in the narratives of his birth, there is darkness. There's the darkness of the oppression of, early, of, of, of earthly rulers like Herod, the slaughter of the innocents that the, the offertory today darkly alludes to. When Herod, out of fear and jealousy, slaughters all the children under two years old. And there's an even greater darkness later in the life of Jesus and his suffering and his death on the cross. In the end of the story we read this morning, God spared Abraham's son, but for our sake, he did not spare his own son. Jesus became human for one main reason, in his own words, to give his life as a ransom for many. So I want to read the last great episode of Abraham's life, the binding of his son Isaac, in order to learn what it teaches us about God's redeeming love and how we are called as God's people to walk in that love and to walk in trust. And again, I have to say this many times, there's darkness in this story, but it is a splendid darkness that illuminates God's redeeming love and Christ's self-sacrifice for our sake. That's the light that is shining on our path 
as we wait and continue to wait for the hope that God has promised us. So let's get to the story. Let's face the really big questions this episode raises. Why did God ask this of Abraham? What is God's intention? What's really going on in this story? And if you've been following the story so far, you might have come to some conclusions about what God is working to accomplish in Abraham's life. Jim and I have been trying to show what some of those things are in our preaching through the Advent season. God's intention with Abraham is to make a new beginning for the human race, to start undoing the things that went wrong in the fall and ever after, to create a new human culture, to reconfigure relations between God and human beings. God's intention is not only to bless Abraham, but to make Abraham and his offspring a blessing to all the nations of the earth, to all people everywhere. And that's what the story has been telling us so far about God's purposes. It's the backstory that's been running through every episode. But if you think about it, that makes this new twist in the story even more bizarre. For one thing, if one of the main problems with the human race is our violent exploitation of one another, and that's been the story through the book of Genesis, then a a violent and bloody sacrifice of the human race's best hope by his own father hardly seems like a helpful strategy to overcome that human disposition towards violence. And for another thing, what God tells Abraham to do in this last episode of the story seems to threaten everything God has already accomplished with Abraham so far. I mean, in a nutshell, now that you finally have the son I promised you, Present him to me as a burnt offering. Sacrifice him to me. That sure raises a lot of questions. And the narrative does not at all hide those questions from us. If anything, it drives those questions home like a hammer driving nails into wood. God calls Abraham, not for the first time. Abraham responds quickly, here I am, in the knee. And God says, take your son. Your only son, the one you love, Isaac, whose name means laughter, go to the land of Moriah, which means something like revelation, seeing, and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. That's quite a punchline. What a dark and heavy story, like a storm closing in. You can almost feel the barometric pressure dropping through this narrative. The oppressive mood grows as the narrative unfolds. A three-day journey takes place in silence, except for the one time Abraham Blake breaks the silence to say to his two servants that he and Isaac alone will be going to worship God. Wait here, he says, and we will return to you. What are we supposed to think about that? And the gloom grows deeper still when out of the silence of the last leg of the journey, Abraham and Isaac alone on their way to Moriah, Isaac suddenly says, Father, my father, Abi. And Abraham answers in the same way he had answered God. 
here I am. Hineni bani, here am I, my son. And his son, his only son, the son he loves, Isaac, says, with all the bright intelligence of a young person, here's the fire, and here's the wood. Where's the lamb for the burnt offering, for the sacrifice? What's going on here, Father? And what a dark and heavy irony there is in Abraham's answer. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. If any piece of dialogue has ever been written that has more power, more depth, more drama, more pathos, more gloom, more brooding brilliance than those two verses, Genesis 22, 7 and 8, then I have never encountered it. And then it gets even darker. An almost crushing silence as the narrative unfolds. When they came to the place that God had shown him, Abraham built an altar there. Not the first altar Abraham has ever built. Maybe the last one. And he laid the wood in order, methodically. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. If you were there, you'd have to hide your face from these things, from a darkness this thick, from a, a gloom this oppressive. But we cannot afford to hide our faces from this. Out of this darkness, there is an amazing light. Not just the light of relief that eventually comes, but the light of revelation. There's something in this story that pulls back the curtain on what we usually think of as reality. There's something here that probably makes us wonder if the God we know is actually anything like we think he is. What is God doing? And what is this story telling us about God and about what it means to live with this God? There is one clue at the beginning of this story that helps. And I didn't want to mention it until now, even though it comes at the very beginning of the narrative. Because the clue is not meant to take the jagged edge off this story. But it is meant to help us understand and see the dazzling light that shines out of the darkness of this story. The very first words in the narrative are these. After these things, God tested Abraham. We have no idea if Abraham knows he's being tested, but it's important that we know that Abraham is being tested. We need to understand what's at stake here in this moment of testing, because what's at stake is not just Abraham's future. The whole future of the human race is hanging on this moment. We're involved in the story of Abraham, not just as spectators. We're involved in the same way we're involved in Adam's story. Adam was tested and failed. And in him, the whole human race failed and fell. When Adam falls, we all fall. And then like him, we all personally repeat that failure 
when we are tested and when we are tempted. And it's very much like that with Abraham, only it's the bright side, even though it's a dark story. When Abraham succeeds in his moment of testing, more than just his personal spiritual success is in the picture. When Abraham passes this horrifying test, it brings blessing to the whole human race. And I think it's necessary to read this story of testing against the background of the larger story that the book of Genesis tells, against the background of the fall. This test is severe. This test is brutally, cruelly severe. But we have to realize and remember that redemption is a severe story. The problem is deep and severe, and the remedy must necessarily also be deep and severe. We lost God's blessing through a disobedience that was rooted in mistrust towards God. Human beings doubted God's goodness and disobeyed God in order to gain something they did not have. And that's how we actually lost the blessing God intended for us. It's quite the opposite with Abraham. Abraham has been struggling his whole life to trust God's goodness. It's been a hard series of lessons for him. But in this moment of testing, somehow he manages to hold on to his belief in God's goodness. And out of that belief, he obeys. This encounter raises that issue so sharply for Abraham. Is this God really good? Are God's stated intentions to bless me and to bless the whole human race actually reliable? Can we trust God? And here's the thing. This story doesn't just raise this issue for Abraham, and we get to see that as spectators. This story pulls us in. It raises the same issue for us, the listeners, the readers, the observers of this drama. Can I trust God? Can we trust God? That's what God's teaching Abraham. Yes, you can. And that's what God intends to teach us. The story's answer is obviously, yes, you can. The outcome is good. Unlike Adam, who doubts God, reaches for what he does not have, and ends up losing the blessing that he should have had, not just losing it for himself, but for all of us, Abraham trusts God. Abraham gives up what he does have in hand and ends up gaining the blessing that he does not yet have, the greater blessing, not just for himself, but for the whole human race. And that's how this story ends. God calls to Abraham for the third time in this story. Abraham says, here I am in the knee. And God says, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And don't read this as if God actually learned something about Abraham from this story. Abraham learned something about God and about life from this fearful lesson. And God does provide the sacrifice, a ram to die in Isaac's place. And, and this may be a little bit anticlimactic, but in case you're wondering why this art has turned into the form it is this morning, I, I wanted to sort of emphasize that, that broken connection between heaven and earth, this, this radical doubt but 
ultimately radical trust that the story calls forth. I wanted to, to sort of riff on the ram's horns and the binding of Isaac on the altar. So um, I, I do have a printed up statement that's in the back that summarizes all the weeks, and I do want to thank you for the privilege of letting me speak to you, not just through sermons, but through visual art in these last few weeks. But back to the story, back to the, uh, to the real lesson, with great finality and solemnity and with an irrevocable oath, God pronounces a blessing on Abraham and all humanity, bound by God's own promise and oath. By myself I have sworn, says Yahweh, the Lord, because you have done this, because you have not withheld your son, your only son, your only son, I will indeed bless you. And I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. And by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves because you have obeyed my voice. Promise fulfilled. So yes, this is a terrible and terrifying story, and it's meant to be. In fact, it would be wrong to say anything to take the edge off this story. For one thing, it reminds us of how costly our redemption is to God. How can we hear God's words to Abraham? Because you have not withheld your son, your only son. How can we hear that and not realize that it was actually God who did not withhold his son, his only son, from us. And one last reference to this thing over here, this object. It's, it has this intentionally cruciform shape to remind us of the death of Jesus as he put himself, allowed himself to be put on the cross for us. When God sent Jesus into the world, it wasn't just to make the angels sing. God was sending him into the world to die for our sakes. How deep the Father's love for us. How costly our redemption was, not only to the Son, but to the Father. We need to understand that, or else our praise and our adoration and our answering love will be too feeble. Glory to God in highest heaven and on earth peace. Peace at such a great price to those on whom... God's favor rests. For another thing, this story should remind us of how costly our redemption is to us, especially when we read these things in the later light of the gospel. God does not ask of us the same kind of sacrifice that he asked of Abraham, but our Lord does ask us to sacrifice something that may be just as hard. He asks us to sacrifice ourselves, to present our bodies to him as living sacrifices. Those are the stark terms on which Jesus offers us God's blessing. Those who keep what they have, who hold on to their lives in this world, will lose them. But those who keep their lives, I'm sorry, those who lose their lives for him and for the gospel, those are the ones who will find eternal life. As followers of Jesus, we are called to sacrifice not just what we have, but who we are. To put all our hope of blessing 
on the altar and into God's hands. And this is hard. It's hard because we have to let go. That means let go, letting go not just of the things that we have, but letting go of control. And that may be an even more fearful thing, to let go of control of the outcome. But it's also a liberating thing. It's liberating in, in, in I think, two ways. Not only liberating because we put our hopes in better hands. We have to let go of our hopes and dreams and put the outcome into God's hands. But we can also let go of our disappointments and frustrations. We have to do two kinds of hard work. The hard work of laying our pride and our ambition and predictable outcomes that we can control on that altar of grace but we can also lay our pain and our resentment and our guilt and fear and shame and any of the darkness that frequently descends into the life of people who put their hope in Jesus on that same altar. And sometimes that second part can actually be the harder part. Even though it's liberating, it's hard for us to let go of resentments and anger and bitterness and fear and guilt and shame. But those are the things that God wants to take away from us so that we can be free. God's call is to lay everything on the altar, to let go of everything that we can see with our eyes and put the outcome into God's hands, trusting in a blessing that He will show us. We have to surrender our, the outcome of our lives to God at all times, not just in some final epic deathbed moment, but in every minute of our lives, day after day, week after week, year after year. And that will set us free. That will bring us blessing. It's not the faith and the obedience of Abraham that secures our blessing and that establishes the pattern of our life in God. They merely prefigure the real thing, a much greater life, the life of Jesus that secures our blessing and establishes the pattern for our life in God. And I just want to end with this this morning. The Apostle Paul's meditation on the life and death and exaltation of Jesus out of Philippians 2 and what that means for us. If there's any encouragement in Christ, if you have any consolation from his love, if you have any share in the Spirit, if there's any compassion and sympathy among you, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he did not regard his equality with God as something he should hold on to, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. And when he was found in human form, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests.